To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? May God bless the reading of his word. Now let's turn our time over to Cola. Good morning, Crossbridge. Uh, for the last four weeks, we've been talking a lot about the family unit between husband and wives and parents and children. And, and one thing that's been underlying uh, those four sermons, those messages, is that we imitate Christ in mutual self-sacrifice and self-giving for the betterment of the other person, the betterment of the family. And as we all give and self-sacrifice, the family grows and is nourished and is cared for because it's not a zero-sum game because God pours into us and we're empowered by the Spirit to grow and to nourish and to love one another and give up of ourselves to love one another. And now what we recognize is, well, that's a beautiful picture of family and that's what we strive to. That sometimes it doesn't always go that way and, and, and it's hard. And, and what we're going to be seeing in our passage today is that it's, it's also hard when it's between a believer and a non-believing spouse or even a believer and their non-believing family. There, there's this quote that uh, blood is, is thicker than water. It's a phrase. And, and what it means is that family, familial relationship, your family ties have a stronger bond than any other friendship or relationship on the world. But when you become a Christian, when you follow Christ, when you know him, when he's your Lord and Savior, that becomes our strongest bond. And so when there's dissonance between family and Christ, then it, then it becomes hard. And, and so what our passage today is addressing that situation. When there's tension between a family who doesn't know Jesus and your own convictions to follow and love and cherish and give your whole self to the Lord. And so we're going to jump into the text. And, and while our text is about specifically between a believer and an unbelieving spouse, this also applies to believers and their unbelieving family. So let's dive into the text. So there, there are two areas where we're going to look closely at, but we're, we're, we're going to set the stage over here in, in verse 12. To 13, and it says this, to the, rest I, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. All right, so, so the context, the, the setting for this message of God, this message of Paul's, 
is in the context of there is a believing spouse. There's a believer and they have an unbelieving spouse. And we might broadly say a believer and unbelieving family. And what Paul says is that if they consent to live with you, if the unbelieving spouse consents to live, if, they're, if they agree, then don't get divorced. Don't separate. Why? Verse 14. It tells us why. And, and yeah. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her, us, because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Okay, so as I read this passage, as I, as I read that verse, I, I, it made me pause and say, huh, what does that mean? The unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse? What, 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 do, what does that mean? All right. So there, there, there are two components to, to understanding what this means. And, and, and they all revolve around this idea of made holy. Right? So the, the first thing, the first idea that we need to understand is this idea of, of perfect tense. Right? The tense of this verb made holy is, is perfect tense. It's, it's a Greek tense. And what perfect tense means is there is past action, right? but the focus really is that there's the, the result of that action, the effect of that action continues into the present. Right? So there's, there was past action, something that happens that affects, that continues from the past into the present, into now, into today. So, for example, if, if, I, if I made the sentence, I uh, had the sentence, Pastor Jeff became pastor of CB. If I said, Jeff became pastor of CB, you, in that sentence, you might say, okay, yeah, he became pastor of CB. That happened in some kind of past event. But in perfect tense, what we're really looking forward to, what we're looking at is, well, Jeff became pastor of CB, but what were the, what were the results of his becoming pastor of CB? What, how did it affect us? Well, there's organizational prowess. There's a new vision and a freshness to preaching. And, and maybe I'd also say relevant to me, when it says Jeff became pastor of CB, he's a big reason of, of, of why I'm here today, working for you, preaching today. The, it, the, the perfect tense is focused on the results from a past action and, and how there's an effect from that action into today, into the present. And so what we're looking at in this verse is this past action of the spouse accepting Christ and the result of that is the unbelieving spouse becoming holy, becoming like Christ. So what does that mean? What, what, what does it mean that the, the spouse is holy, that the spouse is made holy because the unbelieving spouse has accepted Christ? Well, the first thing is that we can, we can say what it doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean that they've attained or reached salvation because in verse 16, it says, For how do you know, wife, whether, you're, whether you save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? The, the condition of the spouse, their salvation, well, they said it's up in the air. It's not clear. We're hoping that's what they'll, they'll lead to. So we can say that this, this idea of, of made holy 
isn't salvific, isn't salvation for them, right? And so we, we might need to dig into, okay, well, now what does it mean to be made holy, right? And, and another passage that we read a few weeks ago when Jeff preached on this would, would help and, and illuminate a little bit about what, what this means. And it's the same word here. So it's in, it's in Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. And it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, this word here, sanctify her. It's the same word. Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now this word sanctify, sanctify simply means to be, become holy, to be made holy. And it has this idea of also sanctification becoming more like Christ. And while usually that idea is connected with salvation, right? As, as you accept Christ, you slowly become more like Christ. It doesn't equate to salvation. And what we, what we might say about this passage is that the, the, the spouse that has accepted Christ into their own life, into their own heart, has a positive, redeeming effect on the unbelieving spouse. You might even say that they become, in their actions and, and maybe who they are, like more, a little bit more like Christ, even if, they're not, even if they're not saved, simply because of this believing spouse's presence to the unbelieving spouse. Right? Uh, let me let me let me share an illustration of what that means. My my wife Olivia, uh, she she grew up in Taiwan to uh, a Buddhist family, and in 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 that family it was a family that was so dominated and controlled by money, um, because they they were working class. They didn't have very much money, and and so money became the center of their lives from a young age. So so Olivia is the oldest in her family. And since she was 12, she had to go out and work and provide for herself. And if she ever needed money for food or for clothes, she had to borrow money from her mom. Her mom would keep an account of how much Olivia borrowed from her. And Olivia would have to work. She worked in a hair salon along with going to school. She would have to work in the hair salon and pay her mom back money just to eat and just to have food or just to go out with friends. And so because money was such a, a dominant position held such a dominant position in Olivia's family, there's a lot of frayed relationships and, the, and there's a lot of hurt because it was all about money. And when Olivia became a Christian, that felt like, a, to her family, felt like a total betrayal to all of their ideas as Buddhists. But for Olivia, when she became a Christian, God turned her heart towards her family and, and first helped her to forgive some of the hurt helped her to forgive some of the frustrations and pain that she experienced because of her family just being dominated by money and, and turned her heart towards loving and caring for her family. And, and what that meant practically is that, well, when we would go on vacations, we would you know, bring back souvenirs. That might seem like a, an ordinary thing to us, but that was so, that was a revolutionary thing for Olivia to think about her family, to spend money on her family and care for them in, in matters that weren't serious or, or really significant, you know. It, it, it meant that for her parents' birthdays that we would take her out to eat without expectation that they would pay us back in any sort of way. And, and also, too, that, that meant that we would spend time with her mom and dad and her brother and her sisters just for the sake of spending time because we cared about them. 
without any motivation, without trying to, you know, butter them up so we could borrow, you know, you know nothing about money, just because we loved and cared for them. And then also, too, they, they saw in our marriage how we, how we handled having disagreements and fights and how we gave each other grace and peace. And they, they were slowly able to see God in our lives. And, and what that did with their families, that actually started to change kind of the fabric and the nature of her family. Simply Olivia's presence and living out Christ in her family changed her family to become maybe a little bit more Christ-like. Maybe you might call a little bit more, you know, leaning into Christ and becoming, you might say, like the passage, being made holy, being redeemed a little bit, right? And, and so, you know, the, because everyone was hurt previously because of money, everyone moved away as far as possible and wanted nothing to do with each other. And after years of caring about them and loving them and really just showing the love of Christ to them, because simply because God changed our lives, that, that when, when people, there was a time where they didn't want to be with each other and, and now they're at a place where they have family dinners almost every week where people really enjoy spending time with each other and they care about each other and people start to buy gifts when they go on vacation for each other. There's, there's real genuine warmth and love in her family that just wasn't there when Olivia became a Christian. So what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, that that and her family they're not christians right but simply because of olivia's influence because she lived as christ because she cared for her family there was a redeeming there's a there's a holiness that was brought into her family even though it wasn't salvific even though it didn't lead to salvation but that her family was changed and and so i think the the first thing we're supposed to see is that as a Christian, simply your presence, your Christ-like presence in the family makes a difference. Simply your presence in the family as you live out Christ makes a difference because they see you at your worst, but then they see what Christ does and how he shapes and forms you and changes you. And it makes a difference in your family. And what we ultimately hope that difference leads to is salvation. We look at verse 16. This is what it says in 16. This is, this, is, this is what we're hoping for. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The heart of this passage, the heart of, of wanting to be a presence and wanting to influence and making a difference in your family is that you hope that it would lead towards their salvation. And this idea of, of living out Christ, living out the love of God for neighbor, the love of God towards your family and making a difference and leading them to Christ is, is all over the Bible. And, and I, I could give hundreds of examples, but my, one of my favorite is the law, right? Is, is reading the book of Leviticus. Because, you know, many times in, in Bible reading plans, if you, if you start at the beginning in Genesis, good stories, you know, Exodus, great, awesome. You get to Leviticus, it's just laws and laws and laws and laws. But the reason why we have all of those laws 
is because it's it is because it forms our relationship with each other and it forms our relationship with God and sacrifice. And what that's supposed to do is there there's there's a part of it where as we interact with each other, as we interact with God, other people would interact with Israel and say, "Hey, there's justice in Israel. There's peace in Israel. There there's a relationship and a closeness that the people of Israel have with God that I that's different and unique and special. And, and it was supposed to draw all the other nations of the world to say, hey, there's something special about this place. I want to know it. I want to know God because of how they live, because of how they act. There's supposed to be a drawing in of knowing God because of the way that the people of God act. That's not just Old Testament. That's also New Testament as well. Uh, two weeks ago, when Dr. Arthur's preached on parents, he talked about exposure, about often how Greek parents, if they had a daughter or a malformed um, child, that when the father would first meet the child, if he embraced the child, it was theirs. They would keep it. But if he turned his face, if he turned his body away from the child, the mother would put someone from the family, maybe the mother would, would take the child and leave them on the street or in the woods and they would die by exposure. But part of what the church did and how they went to redeem this act was they found these children that were left on the street and they would raise them and care for these children who were unwanted by society and raise them as their own. And this didn't go unnoticed by the people of Rome. And the people of Rome would say, what kind of people, what kind of God do you believe in that you would care for even those who have no value? And early records of the church show that the Christian's compassion for the poor and exposed children brought people to Christ. It was the same thing in the Colosseums where Christians, when they were being persecuted by Nero, by later emperors, they would be thrown into the Colosseum and they would be given a choice. You could either renounce your faith or you could continue to declare that you're, sorry, you can continue to declare that you're a believer and be torn to shreds by wild animals. Lions, rabid dogs would come and they would rip you to pieces. And, and though there were some Christians that renounced their faith, there were others that stood firm and said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God and I won't renounce my faith. And I have peace because it's worth it to follow Jesus. They faced their deaths with conviction and courage and peace. And that changed the hearts of the people of Rome because they were originally antagonistic towards Christians. And one, when they saw their faith, when they saw their courage, when they saw their peace in the midst of death, they said, there's something special. There's something unique. There's something here that I don't have in my life and that I want. And it changed the hearts of Rome towards antagonistic towards Christians, to sympathetic, to curious. And there's one of those things that led to Rome becoming a Christian empire. It changed the hearts of people because of the way Christians act. And now, while those might be grand and big examples of nations being changed, part of the way we participate in this is through 
our families and how we, as believers, with unbelieving family, we simply are present, living as Christ to our unbelieving family members. And we make an influence, and what we hope is that that influence leads them to salvation. It leads them to relationship with God. It leads them to hope and peace and friendship with Jesus. That's what our hope is. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what our, our goal in all of this is as we live as Christ. So today's sermon, honestly, is a really simple one. That what we do as believers with unbelieving family members is live as Christ. And we, we know that as we live as Christ, as we model Christ to them, that it does have a work in their hearts. It does have a work in their lives as they see us and as, we, as they see God shape us and change us. And no matter how old you are, Christ is still shaping you and changing you and moving in your life. And as people see that, I pray, our prayer, our hope is that that would lead them to know Jesus. It's a simple message today. So let's talk about three practical ways that we could do that. That we can live in a way that, we, that our unbelieving family members would know Christ. So the first thing is, is our actions. Our actions act as a witness to unbelieving family members. So think about how you act. And, and as I was thinking about this personally, I, I, I was recognizing that family has a, has a way, a unique way, our family, our parents, our brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts, they have a unique way of getting under our skin like no one else can. And we also have a way of responding in frustration and, and ah, it, to our family like we do with no one else in the world. I, I, I think of a situation um, that, that happened pretty recently to me where I, I was coming home uh, pretty late on a Sunday night. It was probably about like 1 or one thirty in the morning. Um, and as I was coming home, as I was walking in the door, my dad opens the door and says, hold on, stay outside. I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh no. And he starts drilling me about where I was. He was like, what were you doing? You know, what were we doing at this time? And I was like, you know, I mean, to be honest, I was just at a friend's house in his basement and we were preparing for a worship night that was going to happen in a few weeks. Now I was back home in Connecticut and, and, and I, you know, it, it was a totally innocent activity. My dad's just like, you know, what were you doing? It's like, are these friends that you're with, do they have jobs? And I'm like, yeah. And like, as he starts, as he starts like ribbing me and really giving, giving it to me, it's like starting to get into my business. I start to get mad too. I'm like, bro, my, my, my friends are engineers and actuaries. I don't know what you want. And he's like, and then he starts bringing out like, you know, ministry. He's like, you're, you're a man of, you're a man of ministry. You're a minister. Should a minister be out this late? I'm like, what is it? What does it have to do with being a minister? You know, and, and as I start to, as he, as he starts giving verbal punches, I start giving verbal punches back and we're, we're getting into it. I'm, I'm mad because I'm like, bro, like I have a wife and kids. Like I, I, I'm pushing, I'm getting to 30. Like how, how am I having, I'm not, I'm not 17. You know, it's like, I, I, and I start to get, fr you know, you can, you can see it in my face. I, I was starting to get frustrated and mad. I was like, <sighs> family has a way of, of, of getting under our skin like almost no one else can. And, and as I reflect on that incident and how, how heated I was, and maybe still am, that, that I recognize that 
there was actually an opportunity to to change how I acted, and I could have given him, I could have given a clear answer, and and, and done it with patience, and done it with grace, and and done it with a conviction, and maybe even in a way that that would have showed that as as I was doing. As I was enjoying worship, and as we were planning for a worship night, to say, "Hey, actually, I have friends who have the same conviction as me, and and even as they have work tomorrow as engineers or actuaries, that they have a conviction that worship is so important. Worshiping God is so important that they would be a little bit tired the next morning because it's worth it, right? It's like it's like my actions could have better reflected and better represented how God." Is. And so I, I think that even though family has a way of getting under our skin and making us frustrated almost like no one is, it's also a unique opportunity to extend grace, extend mercy, and extend patience and care and consideration towards family. Right? So that's one of the actions we can do. Uh, another action, another idea, there's a lot of actions. Another idea that we could do is, is simply just our faithfulness in, in prayer in reading the scriptures and maybe even just, you know, uh, you're going to your fellowship or, or, or going to church on Sunday, right? Because it, 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 it's not unnoticed when you get up early in the morning and you read the word or you, the last thing you do before you sleep is to spend some time in the Bible and praying. And, and it's not unnoticed by your family and then people around you. If you spend your Friday nights or Saturday afternoons or, you know, Wednesday evening, you know, or you, or you go to church every Sunday morning, and, and rather than resting, rather than just, you know, taking it easy, you say, I value this time with the Lord, with the community, with the people of God so much that I'm willing to give up my time because it's worth it. Those routines and things that we do week to week bear witness to those around us that Christ is important, that God is real. Now, there, there are a lot of ways in which, in which we can act, in which we can respond, and, and those are just a few but I, but I hope you would, you, we would think about how do our actions reflect and show our unbelieving family members that God is real, that God takes priority, that God is good. How do our actions bear witness to what we believe? So that's the first thing. That's the first actual point of application is we can consider our actions. What do we do? And, and, and just even our routines. But the second thing is it's, it's not only our actions, but also our words bear witness to what we believe. I've done a lot of street evangelism. And if you've done street evangelism or if you've really done any kind of evangelism, you know that it's hard, right? It's hard to talk to strangers just, just about Jesus, like cold turkey. Like there, there are some people who are really gifted and really talented in it. And, and it's something I, I honestly struggle with. And, and I do it because I think it's good and it's right. And we, we ought to share the gospel with people. All right. But, but, but for me, one of the saving graces of, of, of street evangelism is that a lot of the people that I share with, the gospel with, are honestly on the street just strangers. And if they reject the message of the gospel, well, it, you know, I mean, like, relationally, it doesn't affect me because they, they're strangers. And, but the thing, though, is that when, if you share the gospel, if you're explicit with the gospel and you get rejected by family, there's a, an established relational dynamic that, that, that is hard to deal with, right? That, that, that's a little bit difficult. And so we, we need to have wisdom as we 
as we share Christ, as we share the gospel, as we share the good news. And, and so, and so there, there are times where sometimes, but we, we ought to share, right? We ought to be explicit. It can't just be actions. It also has to be words as well. And so, and so there's sometimes the door is open. They ask you, why are you going to church? Or why do you wake up, in the, why do you wake up early in the morning? That's, that's an easy door. That's, that's a door where, you know, you just come in and there we go. It's an easy way. But there are sometimes too where, you know, it's, it's like you, you got to, you, it's almost like trying to get your finger in the door, trying to pry it open you see, in, 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 in a conversation. You're just looking for ways where you're just, you know, looking for, the, looking for ways to just, hey, oh, you know, how do I get in Christ? Or how do I, you know, maybe talk about my faith here, you know? And, and then there's sometimes too where the door's honestly just shut in your face. And you just have to go in cold turkey and and knock on the door and say and, be, and if, if they open the door and say, "Can I talk to you about Jesus? Can I talk to you about my faith? Can I talk to you about what I believe?" The point what I'm trying to say is that it's it's not just our actions, but it's also our explicit words and looking for opportunities to share what we believe and, and maybe being wise about it. If the door's open, going for it, looking for opportunities, but also too sometimes when it seems like there's no door open in a conversation, just going in cold and, and, and sharing the good news of Christ with someone. The point is we don't just live out Christ. We also talk and share the word and the good news of Christ as well. So that's the second thing. And, and the last thing last point of application uh, that we can have towards unbelieving family members is prayer. Right. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in Krashen, you've heard me say this, because one, one of the themes of Krashen this summer that, we, that we're really pressing into and focusing on is prayer. Because the reason we pray is because God hears. Jesus acts as our great high priest and he brings our prayers before the Father and we know that God hears our prayers. That's from Hebrews 4, chapter 4 and 5. God hears our prayers and when it says he hears our prayers, that word hear isn't just an internal, it goes in and nothing happens. That word hear means he hears, he understands and he responds to our prayer. So when we pray, God responds, maybe not in our timing, maybe not in the way that we want to, but God responds to our prayer. So we pray and when we pray, it, 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 we, we recognize that we're limited by our own abilities. We we can, we can do the actions, right? We can, we, can, we can change our heart. We can be patient. We can be loved. We can be kind. And then we can also explicitly share the gospel. We can do what we can do, but ultimately it's up to God to change hearts and moves hearts. And so when we pray, we recognize that we're not able to do everything on our own, but we trust that God would also work, that God would also be moving too. And so prayer also helps us to recognize that we need God, that it's not only on us and that we can't do it all on our own. And so we pray because we know that God hears and responds and does the impossible work that we can't do of changing hearts. So we pray. But I'd also say part of prayer also is for us as well. When I was maybe about seven or eight, um, my mom every night would pray with me and, you know, we'd, we'd pray for the salvation of, of um, my grandparents, her parents. And 
Afterwards, she tucked me into sleep. And I remember one night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I needed to use the bathroom. And, and, and as I got up and I was passing by the living room, I, I, I saw my mom reading her Bible and, and she was praying. And as she was praying, she started crying because she was, it, it, she was praying for her mom and her dad to accept Jesus because she shared the gospel with them for years and years and years. She would take an annual trip back to Taiwan to share the gospel with her parents and they would reject her every time. They were coming from a Buddhist background as well. My grandfather was a priest in a Buddhist temple and so they would reject her heart every time and it, and it hurt her heart. And so I remember that feeling of, of hearing my mom cry and cry out to God for the salvation of her parents. And as I get older now and I realize that my own dad isn't saved as well. It hurts my heart in the same way. And so when we pray, we also are praying for ourselves, for our endurance, for our comfort, and also for strength to continue on even when it's difficult and even when it's hard. And we're praying for courage to continue to be bold in sharing the gospel and living out the gospel and even for opportunities as well. So we pray, knowing that God hears and responds, but we also pray that God would give us courage to share with our unbelieving family. So again, you know, this is, this is a message that's, that's, that's simple. And I mean, honestly, like, this, this is one where I, I share a lot of personal anecdotes because you know, I, I saw my, my mom go through this with her parents. She was the first Christian in her entire family. And then also, I live this out through my wife because she's the first Christian in her family too. And so this is real and, and, and difficult. But, and, 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 you know, I, I know your, situ your situation is likely not the same. But, but I hope that these ideas of the fact that our simple presence makes a difference. And we pray that the difference is, is leading to salvation. I pray that that idea would be encouraging and we'd be hopeful and these practical ways in which we could do it as we consider our actions, our day-to-day, -day, our routines, as we consider trying to, you know, get away in with our words and sharing the gospel and then also through prayer. I pray that these things would encourage you in the act of sharing the gospel with unbelieving family members. And because they're family, inevitably, we didn't choose them, but we care for them so, so deeply. So I pray that this would be an encouragement to you and hope for you that God is near, God is with you, and that he's good. And, and, and if, if you're coming from a place where all of your family are believers, first of all, praise the Lord. That's, yes, that's awesome, right? But then also, too, I, I think that there's, there's truth in this, not just towards unbelieving family members, but I think that these, these, these ideas are true for coworkers and friends and even strangers as well. And I pray that you would, you would also take that into your lives wherever you are because our hope as a church, our hope in this series is that you, you would recognize that we model Christ. We image Christ. We live out our faith in Christ everywhere, whether you are a 
father or mother, husband or wife, child, single, married, in every part of life that you would live out Christ and show the world and show families that Christ is real and is good no matter where you are. And specifically today in our context for unbelieving family members that you can do that as well to live out Christ to them. So my hope is that you would gain hope, you would gain encouragement as we live out Christ towards our unbelieving family members. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray for your wisdom, we pray for your hope, and we pray that you would work in us as we consider our actions, as we consider our words, and, and as we try to bear witness in all that we are to our unbelieving family members, Lord. Would you give us courage and conviction? And also, Lord, we pray that you would also work in their hearts as well. We need you. We all need you because we are sinners so desperately in need of a Savior, yet you're a God who gives his grace so willingly and so freely to us. So, Lord, would you give us courage to also be bold and love those around us well. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.